Historians are back at it again. I am Ryan Ritter, Dash Jimmy McShane on the line. Jimmy, Hello. how you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing, Ryan? Uh, I am doing great. It's nice to get back in the TARDIS again. Um, after kind of a few weeks away, uh, running around with some capes and tights on. <laughs> now, uh, we're back traveling through time and space. It's season two of our classic Doctor Who rewatch, and uh, it's... Uh, it's like putting on an old pair of gloves. I got to tell you, uh, I'm very excited. And uh, all right, yeah, I feel like that says a lot considering I'm still going into this relatively uh, well, completely cold and blind. <laughs> um, anything? Should we just get right into it? Let's go. Yeah. So the first season two begins with a three-parter called Planet of Giants, Ooh. which I think is an interesting title because it kind of makes it seem like it's going to be on an alien planet, right? Correct. And they, they kind of play with that in the first episode quite a bit. They do, but of course, it's not. It's on Earth, and our heroes have all been shrunk down to the size of an ant. Oh, my God. <laughs> so before we even get into like the production history and stuff like this, what was your general impression of this three-parter? What did you think of it? I liked it. Um... I was surprised at how um, relatively low stakes it was for a, a season premiere. And I say that with heavy air quotes because, of course, TV wasn't quite structured the same way um, that TV is kind of produced now where everything is, you know, strong season premiere. Maybe I don't know if people even care about sweeps week anymore. That was a huge deal when we were in high school. I don't know if people care about that now. And well, so- of course. It's different in Britain as well. British TV has different differences. Not, to it's, not ad, it's not ad-based. Right. Um, right. Um, but also, you, something you've got to keep in mind is this is only off the air for like two months. Right. You know, and so it, it, it was more like a quick break that people had versus, you know, yeah. instead of a huge three or four month break that you had in America. And these days now, it's sometimes an entire year break or more. Yeah, I mean, to, to put a fine point on it, the last serial, um, The Reign of Terror, last episode, that was September 12th of 1964. And uh, Planet of Giants' first episode was October 31st, 1964, All Hallows' Eve. Uh, so, like, six weeks. Yeah. Um, interesting that it aired on Halloween. I, I, you know, um, 
Yeah, clearly, I, clearly not aimed for that. I think it's just what happened. That's just a, a scheduling quirk, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, yeah, hit us with a little production history on this one. So this is this was kind of interesting because when the back in 1963 when they were first kind of coming up with ideas for this TV show because they you know they knew they wanted to make the show but they weren't quite sure how they made it started. This was actually part of the pitches that they talked about that the doctor would kidnap you know Barbara and they'd be shrunk down to the size of ants and stuff like that. Um, oh, okay. But it never formalized into a script. And of course they went with uh, Khan, Zah, or whatever uh, their name is. Yeah. It was, it was my, my, yeah. My favorite characters. Your favorite characters, yes. Um, but David Whitaker, the script editor, for, and of course I think we've talked about before, there's not really a showrunner in these days like there is today, where there's one guy who's kind of in charge of where the of the where the direction the show's going and the arc of the character stuff like that it's mm-hmm. more there's two people you have Verdi Lambert and David Whitaker and they're kind of in charge of hiring people and finding people to write stories and David Whitaker's job was to find the people to write the stories and make sure the stories kind of made sense together he wasn't necessarily finding an arc for the characters to go on he thought this was a really cool idea for a story and he went out and tried to find people to write it. And actually he went through a couple of people before he finally found Lewis Marks to write it. And this will not be the last story that Lewis Marks writes for Dr. Who. I believe he writes four total. Okay. Um, but the rest of them are actually in the seventies. So we're not going to see Lewis Marks. Oh. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, of course, the first two episodes were directed by Mervyn Pinfield, who also directed. Um, where is it? He also directed the first four episodes of Sensorite. Oh, okay. So yeah. we've seen him before, and I don't know if we talked about this in the Sensorite podcast, but he was actually Pinfield was a pretty important member of making the show in general, because of course, Doctor Who was Verity Lambert's first. Uh, TV production and so she had no experience so Sidney Newman who was a guy who assigned Lambert to the to Doctor Who and he was kind of the driving force behind the show being made he assigned Penfield to kind of help Lambert to make sure you know because it's her first job and Penfield had some experience and so he helped he he did a lot to kind of help get the show together as well so he's a pretty important person in the show's development in history and he will go on to direct a couple more things for the show um to one more actually he he goes on to direct one more uh serial for the show before he unfortunately passed away uh he he actually was going to be more involved in the show um how did he die again he just felt he just felt ill. He just got sick. Unfortunately, it's really sad. Ah, that's 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 always really sad. <laughs> it's just that they just got mysteriously ill and they yeah. couldn't fight it. Ugh. Yeah. So he directed the first two, and of course Douglas Campfield directed the third episode. 
Um, and he's also this. So this is the first episode he's directed for the show, but he's actually going to go on to direct one, two, three, four, five, six, seven more serials. So we're going to see. Wow. Uh, Canfield a couple more times before we're done here as well. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good yeah. good job so, with both of them, obviously. Um, I thought this was a relatively well-directed serial. Right. Something else I think is interesting. This is actually filmed as part of season one. Oh, I didn't know oh, that. Decided, yeah, they decided to hold off until season two to start it. But... Donald Wilson, head of the BBC serials, didn't really like the serial. And because it was originally four parts. And so he was just kind of, so, you know, that's why he had the third and fourth part edited down to a single episode and made it just three parts. And in fact, he wanted to go with the next serial first, but couldn't for some production reasons. And so that's why this one's only, it's kind of an odd number of three episodes. Normally it's like four, six, or seven. It was supposed to be four, but it was edited down to three. And uh, that actually is a piece of information that we should hold on to because we do have a kind of a special, uh, special features discussion um, as we, after we discuss this serial. I don't know if we want to just uh, talk about that, you know, talk about what that's going to be now or if we want to save it for a you know, when we're done with three episodes that actually did air, up to you. But we can save it. Yeah, we can save it. Yeah. All right. Um, but yeah, three is what we ended up with, and um, I don't know. I thought I thought three was a good length. Um, again, uh, one of our bigger I don't want to say gripes. One of our bigger observations in the negative sense of season series one, season one. Um, was that a lot of these serials ended up being a little long. Like four usually was good. Um, six usually they got in trouble. And the, the rare one that was like seven um, was just, just terribly too long. So when I saw that the first one here was three, um, I had a good feeling about it. Uh, so this is what I'll ask you. Um, what do you think about this serial? I think it's all right. Uh, I think... I don't know. I, I feel like I enjoy it, but it doesn't stick with me. You know, when, when I when I look back and think about first Doctor serials I really like, I normally kind of forget about this one. Like, I don't hate it. It's certainly not one of its worst ones. But, but for me, it, it's mostly kind of, despite its unique premise, I find it oddly forgettable. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think its biggest virtues are probably the uniqueness of the sets and the props. Um, lots of, you know, lots of giant sink openings and uh, giant, uh, you know, matchbooks and stuff. And that's all really fun. Um, this one felt like it leaned into the um, educational aspect that I think they were really trying to go for in early Doctor Who. Not explicitly, but there's a lot of, you know, there's like an environmental message with like the, uh, you know, the pesticide, um, there's a lot of reverence, a lot of reverence towards like bugs, and you know, uh, characters kind of get lightly reprimanded for holding back, holding back the, tr you know, not being honest. Um, I don't know if you picked up on those kind of themes more than other uh, serials we've seen so far. I, de I definitely feel like there was a, and they and they kind of talked about like the chemistry of things and stuff like that. I actually felt like there was a. Um, 
a uh, educational element to it. And, you know, something, you know, pesticides are, we talk about pesticides all the time these days. I'm not, I feel like when this cereal came out, pes pesticides were, they weren't a new thing, but we were just kind of first starting to realize the dangers of pesticides and, and some of the downsides that, it, and if you don't, aren't careful with them, the kind of effects that they can have. And so I think it's interesting, you know, this is one of the first Doctor Who stories to really have a um, social message that was relevant to what was going on at the time. Yeah, I think you're right on with that. Um, I, um, and we'll get into it. I do feel like, because, um, you know, we have our, we have the doctor and we have his uh, companions trying to figure out how to cope in the, uh, yeah, being an inch high in a world <laughs> where cats and uh, ants and all kinds of creatures can seem really scary. But up up on our level, we have kind of a murder murder plot or murder cover-up um more like and i will say the only reason i bring this up a because it happens and we're going to talk about it i feel like uh, some very british names going on here we got <laughs> forrester we got smithers we got a pharaoh and they're all I, kind of involved in this murder triangle <laughs> i promise i can't i can't take the name smithers seriously because of the simpsons anymore yep. same um, exactly the same just, way it's completely the name's completely ruined for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which obviously, you know, it's not the show's fault, but I think I just every time Smithers, he, he was the act, even the character was perfectly named. He seemed like a Smithers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was. <laughs> it kind of took me out of it every time they said his name. Yeah, and um, yeah, I totally agree. This is also the first time since. Gosh, uh, I, I might be forgetting something, but maybe since the opening scenes of the pilot that we've been dealing with other humans, like modern humans, uh, other than our, you know, the, the doctor and his companions. Obviously, we've Marco Polo was a human, and <laughs> Gerard and Ja or whatever, they were also humans. Right, but you, you and as the Aztecs, and of course the Reign of Terror as well in France. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the first time we've been back to modern day Earth, which is kind of exciting. Uh, yeah, that was which is which is cool. Um, but of course, you know, it's not the homecoming you know Barbara wanted because they're the size of an ant, right? Uh, oh. So yeah, you, go on. Sorry, there you are. Oh, sorry, I <laughs> I almost knocked my headphones out. There we go. Um, no. Yeah. Okay. Should we start? Uh, wanted to start breaking this thing down. Yeah. Yeah, let's, uh, let's go to the episode. So how does the season two begin, Ryan? Well, um, it starts with uh, an apparent malfunction in the TARDIS, which is a, uh, it's a good way for uh, any Doctor Who season to start, I suspect. I did have an observation right here at the top. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Is the Doctor wearing his French outfit from the last serial? I believe so, yeah. That makes me very happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> just... That was one of the joys of the last serial was him kind of bonding um, and getting along in the, <laughs> with French royalty. Uh, so it's nice to kind of see that carry over. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, there's a, uh, I may get this wrong. Let me pull up my notes here. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're starting, they're, they're jumping into, you know, they're doing their time travel process and the doors open up, which um, seems to freak the doctor out. Um, 
is there a reason for this? Is there a reason for him to be freaked out about these doors opening up? Well, and of course, that's what Ian and Barbara want to know because they don't right. know everything that's going on. And the doctor and Susan are both being uh, less than straightforward with them about it. It's much like the doctors want to do. Um, right. He often knows more about the process than he lets on, but uh, doesn't always um, <laughs> not always forthcoming. Um, but they seem to land safely somewhere and uh you know they got they get out of the tardis and then uh, what's their first clue that something is amiss um well they're standing by these huge rock formations towering rock formations but they seem to be rock formations that were constructed by some intelligent being uh they they don't seem natural right uh and as they want to do, they're not just going to get back in the TARDIS and leave. No. They're going to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, they split up. Uh, I, do, I do think, again, and I, I think they make a bigger point of it later in this episode, but I, again, there's that innate curiosity from the doctor here. Um, they don't know where they are. Uh, it could be really dangerous. They could all die, but gosh darn it, I want to know where we are, and I want to learn something. So they split up. Uh, the doctor and Barbara um, hang out on the TARDIS. Ian and Susan go further afield. I don't know why they went <laughs> further afield. That's literally the word used in this uh, plot summary. <laughs> Not a word I would have used myself. Um, <laughs> interesting pair up, by the way. Um, you would think you know, the, the two adults would go with each other and the uh, grandfather and the granddaughter would, um, would be a team. But um, interesting little split up there. Right. I think there's a practical purpose to that. Uh, Perhaps. For for the exposition later on in the episode, but one might yeah. argue Ian and Barbara are the most physically capable of the two. Of course, Susan's a bit younger and the doctor is a bit on the older side. So maybe having Just someone, who's a, someone who's a bit not too young and not too old in both pairings could also make some, some sense, especially if you're going exploring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think it's a strategic split up for sure. Um, and they both kind of run into their own uh, mysterious creature, uh, although not too mysterious. Uh, basically, the doctor and Barbara find a worm, Ian and Susan find an ant. And it was here where I kind of started realizing there's probably a, there's probably a twist at foot. Um, uh, I, I, for some reason, I started picking up here that they were probably going to be smaller. Um, that just seemed more logical than just a world where everything was bigger. Um, that just read. I, I, I did, that just read to me is the obvious twist. I don't mean obvious in a bad way, but I, I also like that they're figuring it out in real time. Um, it's not just a doctor going, ah, um, we're an inch high because there's no drama in that. But um, no, yeah, it was. I agree. It was a nice little mystery. Like you know, they go exploring and see what's going on, and then when it becomes apparent, like you said, oh, they're on Earth and they're an inch high, they explain it. You know, they don't like. They didn't like wait to the end of the episode to reveal it either, because that would have. Yes. Because you you realize it halfway through the episode, and so it's not like I, I feel like it would have been tempting to make that the end of the episode, like reveal cliffhanger, but I think they were wise not to do that. Yeah, I will say I have that directly in my notes. I genuinely appreciate it. They didn't wait to the end of the episode because right around the same time we figure it out, they figure it out, and I think that speaks to maybe one of the bigger um, benefits of this serial and part of it is because they combine two episodes together at the end there is a crispness 
to these three episodes. It kind of it's nicely paced. They don't belabor anything too much. I feel like it's just as long as it needs to be, which is funny because it almost ended up being longer. Um, well, and I mean, some of that has to do with the fact that they were putting out forty plus episodes of television in a year, and you're just part part of that is you're going to make serials longer than they need to be. So you can stretch them out. You can have more episodes. Yep. I mean, there's definitely some episodes that could have, some serials that could have benefited from a little bit of editing down. Uh, like, I think the Daleks last season would have been great if it was only like five or six episodes. Yeah. Tease uh, of Marinus could have been, they could have lost an episode or two. Yeah. Um, but Sensor Rights is another one, I think. Oh, sure. Been good. sure. Sure, but, sure, sure. But it's this is kind of the nature of especially 1960s Doctor Who in the 70s when they go to color. The season lengths are half as long. And so it gets a bit better about feeling the need to stretch stories out longer than they need to be. I gotcha. Uh, but, but at least for a 60s Doctor Who, it's something that, you know, probably going to be a recurring complaint for us a little bit. But they <laughs> also get a little bit... They also do. I do think they get a little bit smarter about it at times as well, and that's something that's something we'll talk about as we go through it. That's exciting. Yeah, it's kind of fun to watch. It's kind of why I like I like starting things from the beginning. Again, it's this. I, I, there's this. I have this sickness. Like I can't just watch the old SNL. I have to like bust out my DVDs from the '70s and <laughs> watch those because I, I like watching productions and major productions and seminal productions. Figure it out in real time. Um, most shows don't come out fully formed and if they do they usually lose it really quickly because there's nothing else there's nothing else to accomplish um, so it's, yeah I, I, all this stuff the nuts and the bolts and the peaks and the valleys I really enjoy so um, yeah we'll monitor that as we keep going uh, something I enjoyed about the reveal as well so you had Doctor explaining it to Barbara and Susan explaining it to Ian it was nice they gave Susan that opportunity to explain it, that she knew what was going on and she was able to recognize it when she saw it and she explained it to, to Ian. Because sometimes, I'm not saying they do, but sometimes it feels like they alien from another planet with more knowledge than Barbara. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, cause that's, how she's, that's how she's introduced to us in the, in the first Un- Unearthly Child episode. And then she, for 90% of the time, she just feels like a kind of whiny earth teenager. Yeah. And I think it's no mistake that, um, that the first couple episodes is the most I've liked her (laughs) as a character anyway. Um, again, performed about as well as it could. And it is nice that, um, there's a, uh, an attempt to kind of give her, you know, get, bring her back to her roots (laughs) as it were. Um, but yeah, uh, Carolyn Ford does what she can. Uh, one other note about the um, the revelation of the ant. There is a moment that I uh, really like. Uh, Ian has a dramatic line reading about like what kind of world could produce an ant of that size, and then the camera pans right back to the ant, and I found that very funny because um, it, it has like it has like this like deep like musical sting. Like it's not dun dun dun, but it's like the sixties, you know, timpani music kind of. Uh, right. Uh, so just, <laughs> I found it funny because you can still see the ant while the uh, while Ian was giving his line, and it just kind of cuts over his um, 
It's like his left shoulder and just zooms in on this plastic ant. It amused me. Of course, we should mention both are dead. Yes. Right. We, we, should, we should mention them. Both are completely dead. Uh, mm. Both parties have, have encountered uh, these, these massive insects that are, that are died seemingly just going about their business. Doesn't seem good. Uh, is this where we uh, are introduced to our humans? Um, or, do, or do we have the matchbox stuff first? I think we got the, the, match, uh, the matchbox stuff first, yeah. All right. Yeah, basically, uh, Ian and Susan come across uh, a carton of cigarettes and a matchbox, which uh, kind of directly leads to one of them. Well, I have several uh, favorite um, special effects shots in this series personally <laughs> but um you know eventually you will get inside this matchbox and they will have to um simulate you know him jostling around in a matchbox and again very funny <laughs> um, um a recurring problem in this serial is that ian always jumps into the object that's about to be picked up do you know did you notice that you're right <laughs> Anytime someone like comes near and they need to hide, Ian has the sixth sense to go exactly where is least convenient for him to go. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, it's obviously to move the plot forward because right now here there's like, okay, let's go to the TARDIS and fix it. They can't if Ian's been carried off to the other side of the yard. But you think they could have um, at least uh, divvied up that you know, the, the being yeah. carried off duty. You know, there's four <laughs> characters after all. <laughs> But yeah, every single time it's Ian. Yeah, well, I guess um, I guess it's good to kind of, you know, this, this series, he's the one who's going to be kind of the, uh, the one in distress or at least the one that has to be, you know, they, they got to go after him now. Um, mm-hmm. You know? That's true, yeah. Can't always be. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, um, unless I'm skipping anything, the reason that the Matchbox starts moving is because it gets picked up by uh, uh, one of the titular giants <laughs> of Land of the Giants. <laughs> um, yeah. And so let's, let's talk about the, because now we go to some full-sized uh, characters who are around just for the serial, and let's talk about what they're talking about. Yeah, this is where we uh, learn, we, we meet uh, Pharaoh and Forrester. Uh, Forrester played by Alan Tilburn and uh, Pharaoh played by Frank Crawshaw, which is a hell of a name. Um, yeah, Pharaoh's a scientist, and uh, Forrester's kind of an e- evil. He's almost like a capitalist um, or an investor. Or so I, he's, yeah, he's, he seems like he's an investor. He's put some money in this uh, pesticide called DN6. Yeah, and what we kind of have here is the... <laughs> Oh, wow. A timely uh, clash between science and um, the uh, money man. Um, the scientist is saying that the, the <laughs> pesticide can't be released. And uh, we, we have the businessman saying, uh, tough shit. I put a lot of money in this and you're going to release it. And of course, why can't it be released? Well, because it's far deadlier than they ever imagined. Um, it doesn't just kill off um, bad insects. It kills off uh, basically all insects, which you know, makes you jump back to the earthworm and the ant. And this is kind of where you go into the, the education part. Right? They kind of talk about like what insects are good for gardens. Like you don't want to kill off earthworms. Those help help cultivate 
the the plants and stuff like that. So I mean, there's I, they do sprinkle in some educational bits about insects and stuff like that in this aerial. Yeah, and um, it doesn't. Maybe maybe it's me. It's my child mind sometimes. But like, even when there's like blatant educational content um, sprinkled into yeah, you know, something like this. And again, it was it was meant for kids, um, and that's not a bad thing. But even when when they have these moments of like, hey, you can't, you, you gotta, you, you gotta respect, um, you know, the earthworms, like they're good. I go, oh yeah, that's right. And I, I almost want to like take notes, but then I realize, <laughs> I think I already knew that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, but it's not something you think about all the time. Yeah, but when you have uh, William Hartnell, you know, telling you like, be kind to animals, um, you kind of want to be like, that's right, I will. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. So, it's one of the virtues of this cast of characters. I feel like they, in this era, this very early era, I think these, these are the ones you want to have, these performers playing these characters for this iteration. Someone pointed out that William um, Hartnell is almost like, uh, like British Mr. Wizard. I don't know if you remember Mr. Wizard. I don't remember Mr. Wizard. Yeah, he was just this, this, this kind of, not, well, not grumpy, but just kind of like, he's just kind of like a man. Um, Gosh, I want to say 50s and 60s. I think Nickelodeon picked him up and revived him in the 80s. He's just one of those, like, he'd be in, the, he'd be in like, his lab as an educational show. He'd be in the lab, and he'd have, like, three kind of, like, random kid companions <laughs> just to, to bounce experiments off of. And he'd teach, you know, teach them how, like, teach them science. Teach them how, um, just how ox- yeah, oxygen and helium works and, you know... <laughs> Uh, just all other kinds of science stuff that I am, um, you know, put myself on the spot on that one. But uh, William Hartnell kind of has that vibe to me. He's almost like this old man who has like all this knowledge and he's excited to share it with the twist of as long as it benefits him in the moment. Um, there's a little rapscallion um, nature to him there. Um, which, which is something I've always loved about his take on the character. Of course, his take is the only take at this point. Sure. Uh, but there, yeah, there is a certain, like, and it's not ever present. It's not always there, but there's a certain, like, you don't completely trust him. No. You, know, I mean, you kind of, you have faith because he's a good guy and you can see that he's a good guy, but you, you always do feel like he's holding back or he's, he's maybe trying to manipulate things for his benefit and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think that you kind of get that edge with him here. And that's present here again. Um, he seems to be up, he seems to be up to something and kind of a couple steps ahead of, uh, of, uh, you know, Barbara and Ian, especially. And, but, um, he's not ready to reveal why, you know, where he's at. So (laughs) tough luck, everyone. So Um, of course, something we should note and something to talk about due to the size difference, Ian and Barbara and everybody can't actually understand what these guys, these guys are saying. Yes. Uh, it just sounds like, because I guess, I, I don't know how accurate the science is here, uh, but just the, the pitch is all wrong and it just sounds like garbled white noise almost. Yeah, I will say, after just comparing him to a famous scientist, that the science in this serial is a little bit like a, I'm not sure that's I'm not sure how accurate that is, but it's, it feels like it should be right. So um, yeah, you kind of go with it, right? Yeah. So we have we have Forrester, and we have um, Doctor Farrow, 
Pharaoh's like, we can't move forward with the insecticide. And uh, how does Forrester respond to this? Well, Forrester says, he pulls out a gun and shoots him, murders him, <laughs> and says, too bad we're going forward with it anyway. Ah, it's good stuff. Um, <laughs> and, that's, and that's why capitalism is doomed to fail, kids. Um, <laughs> this is what happens. Uh, that's what Doctor Who told you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like an explosion to uh, right, a big to, to, uh, the Doctor and the Companions. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, is this where we is this where we meet our? Uh, I mean, obviously Ian is um, he gets inside the matchbox. Uh, I think he's taken away, unless I'm unless I'm mistaken. Oh, he he was taken away, like. Before the, the murder. So he okay. was, so he's he already was there gone. when that happened. And I believe he was in the Pharaoh's briefcase. So he falls to the ground when Pharaoh dies. Got it. That's right. But uh, another creature enters. Um, again, unless I'm jumping too far. Um, I think we've reached our first cliffhanger. And it's a... Oh, so, so the whole TARDIS crew is able to go and find Ian. They kind of like get that a little bit. That, that like journey from like one side of the yard to the other for them. Okay. Um, a movie I loved as a kid was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Did you ever see that? Yeah. Great I love movie. that movie. That's a great movie. And I feel like like that movie did it right because you, you like, to, for them to cross the yard, like that's the entire movie. Like it's this huge journey just to get from one side of the yard to the other. And part of what's missing here is they don't even show the journey from one side of the yard to the other for Ian and Barbara and Susan. I mean, Which for is, the doctor, Barbara and Susan, they're just like, they just go there and they're just there pretty much. Which is interesting when you consider like how laboriously they show them trying to accomplish other things uh, in the next two episodes. Um, yeah, exactly. Damn, they almost, you almost get like a whole segment of them trying to climb up a pipe. Uh, and, but here it's just, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so just as quickly as they're torn apart, they're back together again. Right. And then, of course, what is that cliffhanger, Ryan? Well, uh, a big old cat. And, of course, by big old cat, we mean just a regular cat um, with his face all the way up with the camera lens uh, appears. <laughs> and it should be noted, not doing anything, not meowing, not hissing. It's just a cat. He's literally just looking blankly. They're probably, like, shoving, putting a treat in front of the cat's face. And he's like, what's going on? It almost feels like, and again, I think this is just... You know, just the uh, you know the ancient television technology at work here, but it almost feels like when the camera cuts to the cat, there's almost this five second beat before it. Um, it's um, but right before the uh, you know like that no 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 and like the next time on, but there's like this five seconds of silence before that, almost like there's a camera operator going, oh, is that all that's gonna happen? All right, uh, cut the next week. <laughs> yeah, it's only really awkward, and don't they like? have it as like a background they have like our four characters and then you see like the cat in the background or something like that yeah but i don't like, know if that's here or right in the part. next okay yeah well there's a lot of that where they kind of have um one or all or some combination of our heroes um up against like a giant blown up picture or something and it kind it, it works for what they're doing. It's 1964, and you kind of just their budget was like a hundred bucks, and you just you kind of <laughs> go with it. But it it doesn't work. <laughs> no, it certainly doesn't hold up at least. 
So uh, we gotta I wait till yeah, we gotta wait till next yeah, week got- to see how uh, if they get eaten by the cat. But, uh, <laughs> but we don't have to. We can we can tell you immediately they do not. Um, yeah. So how do they avoid getting eaten by this ferocious house cat? House cat, Ryan. Um, I think they just stand there until the cat just goes away. <laughs> am I am I wrong? Sounds no, weird. It's just like <laughs> stand still until you lose interest, and the cat just licks his nose and walks away. <laughs> yeah, and thus begins episode two, dangerous journey. And we oh, well, we have this whole uh, I, I, something I had forgotten about before we started this series again. Uh, I want to keep track of these uh, uh, serial names because they're always named something like attack or. Uh, it's a danger, <laughs> and uh, th- th- this does not disappoint. Dangerous journey, and it is a dangerous journey. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose it is. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, here is where we. Oh, that's right. So, uh, the murderer Forrester had gone away after he murdered the dude. Yeah, uh, and here he comes back, and so the cat's gone. And our heroes have to run to hide. And of course, where does Ian go? Well, um, doesn't he go right back into the briefcase? He goes right back into the briefcase with Barbara. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Despite he, the fact that all four of them were together, they go in opposite directions. The doctor is in one direction, Ian and Barbara in other ones. And Ian has this brilliant idea let's hide in the briefcase. <laughs> let's hide in the most obvious thing you're going to pick up. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's I, now. I think from a uh, from a pure storytelling device, I think it's just the way cheap way to split everyone up again, so we can have these two dual things. But come on, Ian, you're the you're supposed to be the smart one here. You're the de facto leader, <laughs> really. Um, yeah, yeah. Not 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 a great not a great outing for him. And this is where we meet Smithers. Smithers, um, yeah. Nah, not 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 Wayland Smithers. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that would have been fun too. Yeah, that would have been great, but nope, just Smithers. And this is another this another scientist. Um, yeah, he actually made the the chemical. Got and it. He he sees a dead murdered man on the lawn, and what's his reaction? He goes, huh? What happened here? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. I, I love it's just I, British repression, or if it's just bad <laughs> acting, or I don't know what it is. But no one seems he doesn't seem particularly bothered by this. He's not bothered at all. In fact, like Pharaoh comes, I forgot exactly what he says, but like, like it's like the worst lie I've ever heard. For like, oh, he tripped and fell on his gun or something like that. Like, I think that's terrible. exactly what it was. I, it's, it's not much further away from that. Yeah. It was this, this terrible lie. And then like the Smithers is like, dude, I'm, I'm not a fucking idiot. You murdered this dude. Like, I don't give a shit, but just be straight with me. There's, uh, a, there's a running thread with Forrester, and I, it, it taps into a, uh, a trope subversion that I really like. It's a, it's a bad guy with a terrible plan that gets called out immediately. This happens, this happens a couple of times with him. I agree. And that's something, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting about this, because it immediately renders Pharaoh like, completely unthreatening. Despite the fact that he's murdered somebody, because like, he's so dumb, like, you don't find him threatening at all. Yeah, and I think that cuts to maybe what the flaw is with this serial, in that there isn't really um, the villain is not very threatening, and um, you know you look back on um, some of the better serials, uh, you know, uh, the Aztecs come to mind. These have great 
villains that mean business. Um, the main bad guy, the Aztecs, I, which whose name escapes me, but um, Toxel, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Um, he will kill you if you mess up. Like you believe that the, someone will lose their life if they if he catches on to their ruse. Forster is just like, <laughs> yeah, he's a lo- he's a, he's a loser. He's a, he's a, he's just, you know, uh, and I, maybe that's what renders this a little toothless. Maybe what keeps it from being one of the greats. Um, Although you know, it, it kind of occurs to me. I I wonder how intentional it was. Like this idea, because the the idea is this pesticide so dangerous it could literally like wipe out life on this planet if it's used widely because it would kill the bugs. So the crops wouldn't be able to grow and you'd have not enough food for everybody as causes huge problems. And it's all caused by a greedy idiot businessman. It's I mean, a little, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting, but I also feel like they didn't really lean into that very much. Yeah. It's interesting because to lay it out like that, it makes it sound like this is like very on the nose and it's, it's, a, it, it doesn't feel as blatant as we're making it sound, but it's definitely there. Um, but yeah, I almost wish, I almost wish Forrester was a little bit more cunning. Um, maybe that's what would have helped a little bit. Like he can be mm-hmm. greedy, he can be stupid, he can be. I mean, he's driven by greed. Um, he has you know an equ- equivalent of a doomsday device. It's not it's not like an atom bomb or anything, but it, it will severely mess with things for years and decades to come. Uh, if any of this sounds familiar, I will re- remind you this was 1964. Um, and, um, you know, I, he can be, he can be dumb, but I, I, I wish he just, there's no, yeah, there's no, there's no real threat in the whole serial. I mean, spoilers, I guess, um, it's kind of just a, it's just a stall for time until the police come to arrest him is essentially what it boils down to. Right. Um, and that's a shame. Um, but still, um. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what, but still, I, I thought I was going to have some sort of positive to even that out with. But um, oh, I would say as per usual, you know, you are engaged with what's going on with the doctor and you know Barbara and Susan because you like those characters and they're good characters. And so even if they're the rest of the story falls flat a little bit, it's it's a still, means to an end. Yeah, it's a means to an end, and you're still enjoying seeing these characters do things. I think. Yeah. You know? Well, and it gives them it gives them something to problem as opposed to just running away from, you know, giant bugs, which inevitably probably could have looked silly. Um, it gives them something to actually problem solve, and I think the show shines when the characters just sit down and problem solve. And um, we're we're gonna get a fair bit of that here very soon, and um, it's great. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So yeah, where are we? So Smithers. So, so Smithers doesn't give a shit about murder. Uh, <laughs> he is complicit. He's complete. He's just as evil as Forrester, right? Yeah. Um, um, he just cares because he thinks he thinks his pesticide's gonna save the world. Like that's how good it is. Like it's gonna be this thing that's gonna kill off all the bad insects and leave all the good ones. Uh, so one dude being murdered. Is not going to be a problem because it's going to save lives. That's where his head's at. Um, sure. Which again is is kind of interesting, but it's not quite something they lean into too much. Uh, and yeah. They, they also never really punish Smithers for being completely okay with murder. So that's a we can talk about that later, maybe. 
Um, yeah, it gets cleaned up a little bit too quickly. But um, so basically, we get into a murder conspiracy at this point. They're going to cover it up. They're going right. to make it seem like he um, he just went gone on a boat. <laughs> That's right. But was before, this like before being murdered? He confided in his the total stranger that he's going on vacation to France by himself. Well, there you go. I mean, look, airtight plan, <laughs> dudes. Yeah, I don't. I I think this could have worked were it not for um. <laughs> The doctor and those meddling kids. Um, Although we'll get into that, how much the doctor and those meddling kids even played a role in this little drama. Yeah, there's a little. That's something we can talk about later, I think. Yeah, but... there's a little Raiders of a Lost Ark symptom going on here, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, it's not. This is not my observation, um, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, so yeah, so they start cleaning up the uh, the evidence, as it were, and that includes the briefcase, which they place in the laboratory, which gets Ian and Barbara into the laboratory. So now we're now our our crew is split up two and two. Uh, let's should we should we continue on with uh, Ian and Barbara? Or do we want to check back in with the doctor and Susan? Uh, we can start with Ian and Barbara. So Ian and Barbara, it, you know, the Smithers and Forrester put the briefcase on the table and go into another room. Yeah. And so. this gives us a scene where uh, Ian and Barbara are examining the laboratory. And uh, this scene's pivotal for a couple of different reasons. A, um, this is where they find a, a, a pile of seeds, um, which are huge. They look like, they almost look like giant corn nuts to me. Um, yeah, that's what I thought they were, but uh, maybe not. I'm yeah, not. which they learn are, uh, uh, was infected with... Um, they learn that it's, they obviously don't know about DN6 yet, but then they figure out it's, well, it's contaminated with something, right? Well, well, because they smelt something on all the insects when they're walking by them. Yes, indeed. And That's so right. Ian and Barbara smell the same thing on the seeds. Now, of course, Barbara picked up one of the seeds. Right. And, and when she realized it, was, it had the, the smell on it, she put it down. But then she's kind of worried, you know, if do you have to ingest it to get it or does it absorb through the skin? How is it uh, that, that you get infected by this thing? But of course, Ian doesn't see or pick it up and Barbara doesn't say anything. We have like a zombie movie uh, trope playing here. So it's the person who's secretly been bitten and is wondering if they're going to turn. Right. Um, maybe, low, maybe lower stakes, but um, I don't, you know, I might be... Um, uh, I'm jumping ahead. I was going to say this leads to kind of a nice, quiet scene between uh, Barbara and Ian, but that's that's a little later, hmm. um, which we can talk about now, because and we can jump back to Doctor and Susan and then converge the converge our group, or we can jump over to Doctor and uh, Susan right now. We can we can talk about it now if you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, talk about talk about Doctor. Or talk about Ian and Barbara. Talk about Ian and Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's kind of this nice quiet moment. Uh, they figure out a way to get out, get down to the floor level. Um, they kind of make, you know, they engage their inner child and make a little ladder of paper clips and uh, get down. Um, well, at least they tried to make one. Uh, they run into a fly. Fly lands on the seeds. It dies instantly. Barbara's all freaked out. She knows what that means. And it kind of leads to this nice quiet moment between Ian and Barbara. And Obviously, the underlying tension is Barbara trying to decide whether to tell Ian that she's 
possibly even infected. But it, you kind of feel a real bond between the two characters in this scene. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I, I found this really interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree. And it was nice to just have a scene where, the, you know, because you know, Barbara have gone on a bunch of adventures with the Doctor at this point. They've gone to alien planets. They've gone back in time. Uh, but it was still nice to see them react to the weird-ass circumstances that they find themselves currently in. And just take a second to just be, like, emotionally drained by it. Yeah. Um, but I agree, because they, they do have a really good bond. I think the two actors have really good chemistry together, and I think it's on full display in this scene. Yeah, it's, it's one of the few moments in this where it really felt, you can really feel the stakes turn up. Because as we explained, is it's pretty low stakes compared to like, you know, possibly everyone getting their heads cut off by the French or being sat, you know, be, becoming human sacrifices or something like that. This is simply just a, um, it's kind of just a murder plot that they barely have any um, insight into. But the, the, yeah, I, uh, this really feels like something really bad could happen and you don't want anything bad to happen. And I think that's a real testament to how much buy-in that you're at they're able to give to you, the audience. And um, I think that's pretty cool. I agree. It was a lovely scene. Um, and that, and but, that takes, yeah. Yeah, and so let's go to uh, the Doctor and Susan now. Sure. Down in the pipes. Um, so, well, first we should mention, because they see Ian and Barbara get carried into the house, and they realize they need to go in to help Ian and Barbara. Right. And so, uh, of course... How do they realize the way into the house? Well, um, they find a drain pipe that kind of goes in, you know, from the outside of the house that would lead back into the laboratory. Um, I don't know if they know specifically it's going to be in the laboratory, but they, they figure this is going to be our way in and we'll find them from there. And thus leads to kind of a, I don't say long sequence, but again, you, compared to the microsecond it took them to get across the lawn, they spent a fair bit of time climbing up this pipe. Right. Um, which kind of leads them into trouble. Um, and again, unless I'm jumping something. Uh, oh, well, no, I am jumping something because they reunite first. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, they come out and, and they, Susan uses the sink as kind of an amplifier to call to Ian and Barbara. Right. And so Ian and Barbara come over the sink. And right when Ian's about to climb down, we're going Ian and Barbara about to climb down and join them. Miller and Pharaoh come back into the room, right? And we and, uh, and we we've skipped a scene where like Ian and uh, where Smithers and Pharaoh like talk about how they're going to cover stuff up. But I don't know if you really want really want to talk no. about. No, all, all you really need to know is that this is kind it's kind of a dark scene actually. Um, the, uh, Pharaoh and Smithers come back with like basically blood on their hands. Yeah, uh, I'm like oh, better wash up. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was surprisingly like bleak. Uh, I agree. I agree. And so, yeah. So, Ian and Barbara have to go hide. They can't go in the sink. And then... So, they, um, so they jump back down to the drain pipe. They jump back in the drain pipe and they go into the overflow pipe. Right. And for whatever reason, uh, Pharaoh and uh, Smithers wash their hands with the plug-in. The, the drain. <laughs> uh, which I thought was weird. I mean, obviously, it's to set up the cliffhanger. But... Right. 
Uh, I thought that was great. So he's, he's washing up. He's talking to Pharaoh. He's washing up. He's washing his hands. Things filling up with water. And then he reaches down and unplugs the drain. Oh, no. Yeah, I will say it actually is. Uh, it's a cheap cliffhanger, but it's effective. Um, would make no sense out of context. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was kind of hilarious to me. It's just, it's just, it's just the guy washing his hands that's going no, 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 and unplugging the drain. Yeah, it's like oh crap. He's gonna waste water. Um, <laughs> which leads us to the third and final part, simply titled "Crisis." Um, which really feels like they just gave up naming these at this point. Uh, yeah. Um, the names really aren't the point. They just, I, you know, they're just amusing. Um, so thankfully, the, uh, the overflow pipe uh, cliffhanger gets resolved pretty quickly. Um, so, well, don't they just get into the overflow pipe? Yeah, they just <laughs> um, get in the overflow pipe. And then, like, there's a little bit of part where, like, oh, if he uses any more water, uh, we'll be flooded. But then he doesn't. So, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah it, it just ends up being fine. Yeah, so they're fine. Um, and then, okay. This gets us the Forrester and Smithers again. Yeah. And part of their master plan is to forge a re- the report that says it's dangerous. And I guess just change it to say not dangerous, I guess. Um, uh, apparently, yeah. Uh, and, of course, this involves the scene where Forrester calls the home <laughs> office, uh, pretending to be Pharaoh, the man he murdered. Yeah, this is my Check favorite in. part. Well, then why don't you why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> well, because the because pl- Smithers is all worried. He's like, you can you can change the report all you want, but you still got to call it into the um, well, yeah, you got to call it into the headquarters and uh, you know give give it to them verbally. And Forrester's like, no problem, I'll just change my voice. And he does this by calling into them and just kind of covering the receiver with the uh, <laughs> the cloth and just kind of talking in his. Normal voice, I think. <laughs> yeah. How does that? How does that work out for him? Uh, well, uh, the operator. Of course, this, something interesting about this is it kind of shows how times have changed. The woman who's the operator here, her job is defunct today. Yes, there are, there are no operators, but it, but it used to be like the operator would basically hear all the calls and stuff like that, and then transfer them and stuff like, and so. I feel like a pivotal plot point here could potentially be something that makes no sense to modern viewers. Yeah, which is interesting because everybody would have been familiar with at the time. That's an excellent point. Um, It even took me a second to realize. Oh yeah, that's right. That she's 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 rocking the switchboard right now. Yeah. Right. Um, But she immediately recognizes that is not the. Yeah, uh, this is Hilda, played by Rosemary Johnson, and um, she conveniently has a uh, uh, a police stand husband, husband who, which, uh, um, quite inconvenient overall for the for our villain. But yeah, not great. So he 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 sort of becomes aware something's wrong, um, and we'll uh, we'll put that storyline aside for a second, and we'll go back to. Um, the doctor and our gang of heroes who discovers a notebook with an equation on it. And uh, this kind of gets into that problem solving. There's a whole series of these. And I, um, I think the show is at its best with scenes like this, where they just kind of figure out 
you know, how <laughs> let's figure out this task. And they all kind of work together to do it. And um, the doctor figured out pretty quickly. There's an equation on here and I'm, get, I'm willing to bet this equation is the key to what's been going on in this room amongst the giants. And um, the general solution is to, everyone kind of takes a, a section of the page, which is, you know, it looks like the giant floor to them. And just call out the equations. Is that about right? Call yeah. The molecules, basically. Call the molecules. And the doctor kind of wrote down on his own what Ian and Barbara Susan told him to say. This right. is also weird because when I first watched this, I didn't know it was supposed to be originally four episodes. And you, you kind of don't notice. You don't really seem to miss anything. When you first, I don't know how, how you felt, but it didn't necessarily feel like it should have been longer. I didn't feel like I missed anything. But yeah. watching it, knowing it was supposed to be four episodes, you could kind of see how the cuts were different. The, this episode was edited differently than other ones, and I could see it once I knew it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I do think that... Um, I did get the feeling when we kind of got halfway through this episode, I was kind of, I feel like there's a lot of... There's more balls in the air than usual. Like, because this whole time, you still have the ticking clock that is Barbara that, that ha- hasn't really been mentioned yet, at least, you know, on the show to the, um, oh, what do I mean? Um, obviously, we know about it, but the other characters don't know that uh, it's, she's dying and is not, you know, not doing well at all. And we still, you know, uh, so it felt, the whole episode felt tighter than normal. I won't say, I hesitate to say rushed, and we'll get into it uh, after we complete this episode. We'll get into the special features a little bit, which ties directly into the episode three and episode four smashing up. Um, it's weird. It's in a hot spot. It feels a little tight as is, but I think expanded um, doesn't benefit it either. So I, th- uh, I think th- I think they went with the right call here. But yeah, it feels a little. It feels a little like oh yeah, we're just jumping from they solved that quickly and then they got to this and they got to that. They got to that. Um, yeah, I agree. Is basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's a long answer. Um, so to figure out that it's. Uh, he copies it down. He realizes, oh crap, this is this is an insecticide, but the uh, the balance of the chemicals is really really dangerous. This this could kill off all all insect life, all life or all insect life. So I think the idea is it it's just it's too lethal. Like if you even kill a human in the right doses, got it. Um, okay. But even killing off all insect life is going to be a problem because then you can't. I mean, they're a, they're a vital part of the ecosystem. Right. Uh, of course, as we learned in this episode, uh, yeah, they uh, we didn't know it before. <laughs> yeah, the doctor makes sure you understand that. Um, something we'll say, something that was cut. I know we're going to talk about this later, but something that was cut, I wish I hadn't. There's a nice speech by the doctor, I think, where he basically says, "Look, normally I'm say we shouldn't interfere, we should get to our TARDIS and leave, but we have to do something about this." Yes. And, and I, I think it was a mistake to cut that speech. I know you got to be really tight with time and stuff like that. But yeah. that was one thing I wish they had kept in. Because it also kind of... I, I mean, maybe they cut it because it's not necessary. You could see, they okay, they decided to try to stop this by their actions later on the episode. But, but I think it would have been give a sense of urgency to the episode that it kind of lost when they cut that, episode, that, scene, that speech. Yeah, and you do kind of lose because... Without that, I mean, you remember like kind of like the main point of uh, the Aztecs episode is um, 
ultimately you can't interfere. Um, Barbara spends four episodes trying to like step in and try to correct what she sees as a wrong. And the ultimate lesson is it's, it's futile. And here it just goes like, ah, we got to interfere here. <laughs> and it never, it never really gets, no one, it doesn't get called out. doesn't get addressed. So yeah, it, that is, that is a loss because, you know, immediately they, they try, they, they you know, they try to pick up the uh, phone receiver using a series of forks and, uh, try to call for the police, which is direct interference. <laughs> right. And then that's what the, the next part of the episode is, is them doing that. And of course, through this whole thing, Barbara is getting more and more fatigued and more and more tired. And she just blames it on the situation. Right. Uh, and people are getting worried, but they also have this sense of urgency that, okay, we need to phone the police. Um, and they try and fail. I mean, they, they're able to dial, but they, they are not able to get through and talk to anybody. Yeah, they're trying to scream into the receiver, but obviously um, they can't be heard. Um, but it leaves, the, but it does leave the phone off the hook, which um, Hilda, the operator, notices and uh, kind of rings the alarm bells to her um, as well. Hilda's really on top of things here. I got, I gotta say, she's great. She, she is. Uh, of course, what happens after they try to make the call? Uh, Barbara collapses, <laughs> which is not great. <laughs> That's not great at all. And of course, what do they immediately realize after she collapses? Well, um, they pick up her handkerchief and they smell the same smell they smelled on the. I said smell a lot there. Um, that they they previously smelled on uh, the ant and the worm and said, "Oh crap, she's infected." Um, which is I was not never, great. No, it's not great. I was never entirely sure why she kept it a secret to begin with. Um, it's not. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's just to. to to not bother others, but this had to come to a head eventually. Right. And I think, I don't remember if it's in the uh, extended version or this version, but the doctor kind of goes like, you, sh- you, you held that back wrongly. He kind of berates her a little bit. You did. Yeah. I think that would, they kept that in. Okay. So the goal now is to return back to the normal size as soon as possible. So it's a matter of resolving this murder thing going on and then getting back in the TARDIS ASAP. Right. Well, um, and so a scene they did cut, which is because there's there's only two things they cut that I, I really thought they should have kept in. One was the doctor's speech, and there was a scene where Ian's like, "Screw this murder plot. We need to get you back to the party, Barbara. We, we we have to go. We have to. You're you're dying. We need to save you." And Barbara's like, "No, this is more important that we stay and we stop this pesticide from getting out and spreading." Right. It's more important than my life. Uh, we have to do this before we get to the TARDIS. And of course, the doctor agrees with Barbara and Susan eventually comes to agree with Barbara. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting scene that it was, in my opinion, a real shame that they, I mean, they left in like the last part of it, but they, I felt, I felt it was a shame they cut the rest of it. Yeah, that's fair. And you do, I do, I do think the conflict still reads, but I think that would have made like, it's a nice little point of it. Um, yeah, especially, again, having that moment of sacrifice for Barbara could have been nice to hold on to. Um, but, you know, cut, cuts are cuts. And when the yeah. boss says lose it, you got to lose it. True, true. Um, so uh, uh, Forrester and Smithers notices that the phone is off the hook. They put it back on. Hilda calls back and asks for, um, not Forrester, um, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, yeah. He calls back to ask for Pharaoh. 
and uh, Forrester, the genius that he is, um, what does he do? Oh, he's right here. Let me put that here. <laughs> oh, left, you missed him. Like, oh, it's right here. And then put the handkerchief over the phone receiver yeah. again. It's like, I'm, but again, doesn't change his voice at all. It's like, oh, I'm. Uh, that's me. I'm not then, feeling well right now. Yeah. And of course, her her police officer husband is like, okay, yeah, that's the same guy. We should do something about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, to his credit, he immediately has over there. Um, um, which kind of gets us so, to the last big uh, set piece of the episode. Right. So the, the doctor has a plan to try to foil the experiment. Right. And what's his plan? Well, he wants to basically like combust the insecticide because uh, it'll cause a pretty massive explosion and hopefully... Um, you know, knock out Forrester and Smithers and, uh, you know, put a stop to all this. And I thought the part of the thing was also to burn the place down, right? Uh, oh, yeah. I think you're right. Yes. And they accomplished this. Um, well, don't they, um, don't they use the, um, don't they use the matches and they also find yeah. a, uh, and they find they a, use gas, a, a gas line. Yes. And that was kind of a fun scene where, you yeah. know, where the doctor opening the gas line and Ian and Susan are trying to like strike the match, but it's giant and they can't quite get enough force on it. Yeah. This is where uh, I think the, um, you know, the benefit of the, you know, the nature of this kind of story leads to like these giant props. I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, being able to have mm-hmm. these giant matches and this giant gas line. Um, yeah, really played into it. And, uh, well, they're ultimately successful. They blow up the aerosol can that the uh, pesticide is in. Well, uh, I, well, but um, they're not successful necessarily burning the place down. No, they are not. But, uh, but it's successful in the sense of, at this time, Smithers is kind of becoming growing more and more suspicious of Forrester and why Pharaoh rejected the DNSX. He realized it kills everything. Right. And so he, he turns on on. Forrester and basically saying this isn't right. I, you know, I screwed up the formula. We can't get it. So of course, Forrester pulls a gun on him about yep. a kid when the doctor and, and, and co blow up the aerosol can, which causes a distraction, which allows Smithers to take the gun. And at that very moment, a police officer comes in and arrests the guy who doesn't have the gun, uh, Forrester. <laughs> I have to imagine Smithers said, like, ah, uh, I. I came in just, I just got here myself. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's how he avoided the, uh, you know, the hand of justice there. Maybe, but yeah, they, they arrest Forrester, the guilty party. And, uh, you yeah. know, this kind of thing, like Smithers is kind of like, he doesn't seem to have any consequences. It just all falls on Forrester, it seems. But maybe not. Maybe the police officer's like, wait a minute, you were here yeah. too. Yeah, so wait a minute. In this. Isn't this, isn't this yeah. your stuff? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh it's yeah. it's not really dealt with. It's just kinda you kinda get like the ambiguous sense of justice is served. Yeah. Again, uh, it really does go fast. Although it's about the same in the uh, extended version yeah, as the well. Extended version doesn't doesn't improve it any. No. So uh we're we basically just have a little cleanup work here to do. Um they get back to the TARDIS, um they get back to normal size, and this is achieved by a cool effect of the uh, the seed going from large to uh, right, well, very, very tiny. <laughs> We should mention the doctor brought a seed back with him. Yes. Just so he could observe it to make sure he was 
Yeah, even gets a good old fashioned, are you crazy for me? And, and uh, like, what, <laughs> what possible reason would you have to bring them on? And the doctor kind of goes, I have my own reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you worry about that. And of so, course, Barbara immediately feels better because the pesticides in her blood system. As it is, it's this weird thing. Yeah. Has, or it didn't shrink. It stayed the same size, but Barbara grew bigger, so they didn't affect her anymore. Yeah, that's it. So um, the, uh, you know, the doctor says, yeah, everyone gets, get some rest. Uh, I'll get us out of here. And um, where did we leave off? Well, we leave off with the doctor trying to figure out where they landed. Uh, and the receiver is not working. And the scanner is scanner's broken and showing only interference. And it kind of just leaves on that kind of ambiguous note. Yeah. Um, it really does. You're not quite sure what's going on. They do give you the uh, uh, kind of the uh, ominous title of a uh, world's end to uh, leave you off on, which is, of course, the next episode's title. In, indeed, and that does it for uh, this, ser- uh, this first serial, uh, Planet of the Giants. Really quickly, do we want to discuss, take a couple minutes to discuss the special feature that uh, associated well, with this DVD? So the scripts still exist for episodes three and four, but nothing else does. Uh, of course, in this day and age where they recorded over things that actually broadcast, they sure as hell weren't keeping things that were not broadcast. Right. Uh, and the only reason why we have the audio for episodes that are missing is because fans recorded them during their broadcast. And so obviously with the episodes three and four in their original edit, never recording no one had the opportunity to get the audio so those original cuts of episodes three and four are completely gone so that didn't hinder that didn't hinder the dvd uh special features team uh for this episode and it's kind of funny because when you watch it the guy who put the put it together is basically like there's nothing to say like pretty much everyone who was involved in this Serial is dead, except for William Russell and Caroline Ford, and right. they barely remember making it. I mean, it's not the most, it's not the most remembered of the Doctor Who serials from from the '60s. And so he was like, "But you know what? I thought what would be cool is if we reconstructed episodes three and four using voice impersonators." And so they did. They sat down. They got Caroline Ford and William Russell back to so the voice Ian and Barbara. And they got impersonators. They got a whole cast of impersonators for the rest of the parts in the serial. And they, re- they re-recorded the missing parts of episodes three and four. Yeah. Uh, so we basically have a pretty reasonable facsimile of what three and four would have looked like if they had broadcast uncut. Sort of. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting <laughs> they did because they, they kept the parts that were there there. Right? The, the ones that were in episode three... They're still there, unedited. But then, like, the parts that are missing, it's just like a zoom in on the face. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kind of weird. Or, it's... like, the com- computer animation at parts, too, was kind of odd. Yeah, I will say the, the bad parts about this are, you know, obviously, uh, the, f- the footage they have is the footage they have, and the ways they have to cover what's not there isn't very eloquent. Um, as you mentioned, the CGI isn't great. There's a, there's a scene where... Um, Smithers or something like that, like puts a cat, puts the cat in the box, and it doesn't look wonderful. Or even and, like 
so the something they cut was like there's a scene where like the cat jumps on the counter and walks towards the faucet where they were all all four of our heroes were, uh, and they CGI'd that scene for some reason. Like it's yeah, it's, weird. it's not like the civil scene. And of course, something they cut is the cat died. He was the cat was killed from the pesticide, and that later on when Smithers sees the dead cat, that's what kind of leads him to realize how bad the pesticides was. Right, but that's. That wasn't really a necessary thing. You know, you, you kind of okay that they cut that. The only thing that was nice about that is it kind of made the cat relevant from that, beyond that first cliffhanger. Yeah, that's definitely fair. And uh, there is some, uh, you know, when they're not CGIing things, they're like, just kind of using footage that was already in the episode. And um, there's not a whole lot to use is the problem. And um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sequence of about 30 seconds where they use the same clip of um, the doctor, like, kind of thinking like eight mm-hmm. times. Yeah. And, um, I, yeah. And it got, and it got, got to the point where you couldn't quite remember like when it was actually used in the episode. Yeah. I couldn't either. Uh, and I will, the good part of it is I think um, the voice impersonation, you can tell when the, um, cause the audio just sounds different. You can tell when it's the impersonators or when it's new footage or uh, new audio from Carolyn Ford and William Russell. But I think the impersonations are good. The guy who does William Hartnell is amazing. And they show him. That was great. Yeah. They show him. He's like a 35 year old. And I'm like, what? This, 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 what? <laughs> this guy's doing William. Uh, yeah. This guy's doing William Hartnell. It's really good. Yeah. His Hartnell is really good. Um, the, I think the only one I had a problem with was the guy who did Forrester. I didn't think he sounded very much like Forrester. Yeah. It wasn't uh, great. But I agree. The rest of them were pretty good. The Hartnell one was great. But the Barber one, the Smithers one, and the other ones were pretty good, I thought. Yeah. And I, so, I, so although I think ultimately, I think, I don't know if you have a preference between the uncut version or the broadcast version. I think the broadcast one is probably stronger. I don't know if there's a lot of material added in, except for the, the stuff that you mentioned, which I agree with, that I think needed to be back in there. Some scenes kind of mm-hmm. felt more like a director's cut or like an extended edition rather than, like, lost vital footage. Yeah. I don't know uh, if you agree with that at all. I agree with that. Mostly what they cut was stuff with, like, Hilda and Bert, the police officer and operator, like, arguing about whether something suspicious was going on at the yeah. at the uh, uh, the house or not. And I didn't need that. And, frankly, I kind of felt like you could have cut Bert and Hilda from the episode completely. Like... You have that scene where they call 911 and think they're unsuccessful. You could have edited that to where, like, when the police show up at the end, you're like, oh, that 911 call was successful. Yeah, you know? you're right. But, but that's not what they decided to do, and that's fine. You know, that was, that was their choice. Uh, but it kind of goes one, – one problem I kind of have, and this is a problem not with the editing down, I, it kind of feels like the, the Doctor and Co. didn't really have that much to do with the foiling of this murder plot no and this goes back to the uh raiders of the lost ark of it all which is a brilliant movie but um i've never been able to shake an internet observation where someone said basically um indiana jones and uh marion ravenwood could be completely removed from the plot and um the exact same thing would have happened because it does end up that nazis end up spoilers for a 40 year old movie that everyone has seen (laughs) <laughs> they do end up with the Ark of the Covenant, despite their best intentions, and they're only foiled by opening up the Ark of the Covenant and having their faces melt off, which probably would have happened if Indiana Jones had just stayed at home. Right. 
Right, the only difference is someone else would have come across the Ark of Covenant instead of Indiana Jones at the end. But I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, you kind of have this here. I feel like if everything else played out, um, the operator would have still noticed something was up and her husband, cop, would have still gone down there. Um, you know, more or less. Um, so that, that, that I think that is probably like the second reason why this probably isn't as engaging. They are mostly observers, um, which is maybe why they cut the uh, whole thing about we have to interfere. Maybe they, maybe they save that energy for something where they really do interfere and change the course of time or something. I mean, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, they, yeah. And, but yeah, to your point, to your question, I agree. The, the edited down third episode seems better than the um, longer third and fourth episode. Although a caveat I will say is, well, here, I'll, I'll, put, it, I'll put it like this. Um, the most recently that episodes, lost episodes were discovered was 2012, if I have my year correct. Okay. Um, and so one of the serials that was discovered uh, was one that wasn't really well liked. It's, it's a serial called The Enemy of the World, which we'll get to when we get to. Um, and it wasn't that well liked. And of course, there were, and I would not want to like, I'm talking about the nerds who went, like us, who went and uh, watched the reconstruction and stuff like that. Um, but when it was found and you were actually able to watch it, it's actually a pretty good serial. But it's, it's one that when you don't see the performances and you can't see what's going on, it completely loses, it, it gets, you know, it's not, it's just kind of boring without, without having the visual there with it. Interesting. Um, and so that's, so when it comes to these missing episodes uh, or these reconstructions, that's something I like to keep in mind. Like, yeah, we had the finished product of the third episode. So it's easy to say that's the better cut. And I think it probably was because it feels like they cut a lot of fluff from that third and fourth episode. Um, but the, the one caveat I have is maybe if we were able to actually watch that third and fourth episode, we would have said, you know what? I liked the performances that were given by the actors. Uh, and I actually preferred the longer cut. It's possible. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Um, again, I think if it came out as just like a, the four part serial as intended, I still think we'd said it's relatively tight compared to some of these six episodes, seven episode behemoths. Um, and I will say, you know, a kind of a final note before we kind of you know, wind this thing down. I do think it's admirable. I think it speaks to the uh, genuine love and fan fandom of Doctor Who. That there's a lot of energy spent in trying to like expand on and reproduce and recreate uh, footage and content that was missing or edited. Um, to the extent that they brought in the actors 50 years later to re-record stuff, they, you know. He, Yeah, you look at other fandoms like, uh, oh, Star Wars, let's just say that, for example, where I feel like there's a lot of work done to, like, edit edit it down or eliminate stuff entirely. And, you know, that's a different fandom, different different type of medium. But, yeah, it's just nice to see, like, there's all this work and this love to, like, rebuild stuff. (laughs) That's a good point. And also... It's not like this is like a beloved serial, you know. Right. Rarely, rarely do I see people like, what are your favorite William Hartnell serials? Rarely do you see Planet of Giants on that list. Uh, and so it's just work and effort for this serial that, you know, I mean, it's fine. I like that. I, I enjoy it because I enjoy Doctor Who. But it's not even a, a beloved serial and they're putting this much work into it. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, it's an admirable job, but I think it's an interesting experiment, and I'm um, excited to see more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So should we should we tease the next cereal? Let's come. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So this is a cereal that uh, that the head of BBC Cereals won to start the season with, and it's called Dalek Invasion of Earth. Oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. And so the Daleks are finally coming back. I think you mentioned... Oh, man. You were, you were surprised they only had the one appearance in season one. Yeah, I kind of assumed they were like... Yeah, it's kind of like you assume, you know, you, you, you hear Star Trek, you hear like Klingons and stuff, and you're kind of surprised that they're not like baked in from the very beginning of the franchise. Um, right. And so, um, and so, of course, Daleks are still very popular at this point. I mean, they were hugely, I mean, something, you know, back up a second. At this point here in season two for the BBC, Doctor Who still has something to prove. Because if you recall, we talked about this last season. The BBC didn't really want to make this show. This was Sidney Newman's idea. And he was kind of the one who was in charge to kind of revitalize it. But there's a lot of people who didn't want this show to the point where they were talking about canceling it in the middle of its first serial. Jeez. Uh, I mean, of course, the, the whole Cayman stuff wasn't helping its case. But, you know, there's yeah. still there's a lot of pushback to the serial, to the show going on. And then the Daleks came on. And kids loved the Daleks. And it gave a really good rating and to the point where the BBC said, oh, okay, this is a financial success. We're going to extend it for another season. But there was still a lot of skepticism in the BBC about whether or not the show had legs or not. And so, of course, now we're bringing back the Daleks. This is going to be a really important thing for the show. Do the Daleks still bring in viewers? You know, is, does this show still have interest a year later? Hmm. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna find out. It seems like there's a lot on the line for uh, the old doctor there, and we're gonna break yeah. it down uh, beat by beat, episode by episode uh, next week. That's like we do every week. Um, so that, that wraps it up for the pop culture historians for another week. Uh, you know, if you if you like what you heard, you know, like and subscribe, you know, rate us on whatever podcasting device you're listening to us on right now. If you don't like it, we understand that too. Um, <laughs> uh, but hopefully you like what you heard and uh, tell your friends, recommend. And um, Barring all of that, uh, I was Ryan, Ryan Ritter, and uh, that's Jimmy McShane. And for the Pop Culture Historians, I don't, I don't really have a, a, a witty, witty sign-off here. Um, but maybe a, life, maybe a life lesson to impart, just for people to think on in the weeks ahead. If you get infected with a uh, pesticide, um, tell your friends. Let them know. No, no need. No need. No, yeah. <laughs> no need to keep that a secret. Uh, they're there to help. All right. That's, that's, that's pop culture historians. Uh, see you guys next week. Goodbye.